They don't care about your 900 years of combined experience or your wall of books. They only want to know one thing. Once they've signed on the dotted line, are you going to take care of them? Welcome to the Judge Shaw way, where we believe providing an exceptional client experience is just as important as quality legal representation. From secret tips for creating unforgettable wow moments to proven customer service pointers, the Judge Shaw way is everything you need to go from being a good lawyer to owning a great brand. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Judge Shaw. I'm here with a special guest, Reggie Williams, all-time Cincinnati Bengals pro, two Super Bowls. Reggie, thanks for coming on the show, man. Really appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate the invitation, Judd. I've heard nothing but great things about uh, the quality of your podcast. (laughs) I appreciate it. Well, let's see how it goes. Um, I want to get right to it. You wrote this book, Resilient by Nature. Uh, It was published, I think, uh, September of 2020, put out by Post Hill Press. And it's sort of, um, to me, I read it as part of a memoir. There it is. And really part of a story about your resilience. Great book. Amazing. I love the stories in it. Why'd you write it? You know, it was about time that I sort of documented my life's experiences, uh, primarily uh, thinking about my family, my grandkids in particular. You know, the lessons that come out of the many stories that I have in the book are survival lessons. And it starts early in my childhood. So there were many things, adversity that I had to overcome that fortunately my kids have not had to overcome. But that doesn't mean that they can't have uh, learnings from those experiences. And so I wanted to write the book for that primary purpose. Uh, You know, I love uh, my alma mater, Dartmouth College. You know, uh, we have a lot of great uh, authors, uh, you know, coming out of there. And uh, I just wanted to uh, add my little toothpick to the pile of success stories uh, on a literary basis from Dartmouth College. I love it. I love it. And in the beginning, in the forward or preface, you sort of give out your bucket list, right? The kind of things that you still want to accomplish. One of those was fall in love. Is that still the story? You know, love is such a, you know, uh, a wonderful feeling to have the awe of another person, you know, that uh, you think about uh, in a loving way. Sure, I'd, I'd like to have that, but you know, I, I am very satisfied with the love I'm receiving from my, my children, my great-grandchildren, you know, uh, my mom is still alive, you know, so... You know, it's, it's, you're competing with a mama's love. So, but I, I'm looking for for that and another person, another special person that I can be an an advantage for her success, and she can be an advantage to continue uh, to drive my success. All right. Well, let let's take this to the national level. All right, ladies, nationally, you're listening to this right now, right? On the podcast right now, you have 14 seasons with the Cincinnati Bengals. Ivy League, Dartmouth, probably the greatest player to ever come out of Dartmouth, all-rookie NFL team, Walter Payne Man of the Year, co-sportsman, Sports Illustrated Man of the Year, College Hall of Fame. I think your sales hook on your social dating app will be Reggie Williams. I'm there in your good times, and I'm there in your tough times, and I have the story to prove it. 
<laughs> How'd I do? You did good, man. I think that's a nice little lead into uh, some creating some interest somewhere. All right, ladies, send me your interest. Shoot it out. Re- forward me a, a, a some profile, and I'll, I'll shoot it over to Reggie. You know, Reggie. Jokes aside, you've reached really remarkable achievements in your life. Unbelievable. And and forget aside from the your your career in the NFL. Aside from that, you're, you're picked up by Disney, right? Um, you're hired to basically create the ESPN worldwide zone complex that they have there. Um, but life wasn't always easy, was it? No, I'm from Flint, Michigan, and I was born hearing impaired. So if you don't hear sounds, it's impossible for you to repeat those sounds. And so I developed a speech impediment as a child. I had my very first ear operation when I was two years old. And then uh, another ear operation when I was four. And so I would take uh, classes at uh, Michigan School for the Deaf, as it was called, which fortunately was in Flint. And I'd go through uh, public school during the day, but after school and on the weekends, I would go to Michigan School for the Deaf to improve my articulation. Um, I had a lisp, which I still have a little bit of, but I used to have a stutter. and so. And then, of course, you know, that does not uh, supersede, uh, you know, the social issues of my childhood. I was born in 1954, the year of the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which basically ruled that um, separate uh, schools were unconstitutional and that, uh, you know, every child deserved equal opportunities for quality education. And so I actually uh, attended the very first integrated elementary school in Flint, Michigan, Scott Elementary School, and uh, which is uh, still there today. And uh, obviously, uh, through my childhood, my speech impediment was secondary to my skin color. And, mm. uh, you know, my need to learn how to be resilient began at a very, very early age. So it's resilient by nature. So you can be born resilient and, um, but resilience is a skill set, and you can improve on resilience and you can learn how to be more resilient. Right. And that Reggie didn't, didn't that experience in elementary didn't end right there. Did it? I mean, I read that in Dartmouth university, you come in as a freshman, there's a story about two white proud guys. Who's not going to shower with a color man, even though he is on their team. And they're not going to, right? And, and these, and that, that brother is you, that black man is you. And, and they're literally guys on your team who won't be in the locker room because of that color of your skin. And I, 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 I love how I read later that you hit the shit out of this guy so hard <laughs> that, he, that he quit the team. But how do you overcome that? I mean, race is a big issue and, and still is. How do you, how do, how did you overcome that? Well, It starts with how I ended up at Dartmouth in the very first place. You know, I had spent my whole uh, adolescence preparing to go to University of Michigan. Um, Mm. I studied uh, every weekend at the library. I had straight A's. Uh, I received an academic scholarship to go to Michigan. But Bo Schembechler, the uh, Hall of Fame head coach, Uh, The Michigan Wolverines came to my high school, Flint Southwestern, and there with my coach, 
Dar Christensen, he proceeds to tell me that if I decide to come to Michigan, do him a favor and don't come out for his tea. And at that moment, my dreams were crushed. And um, when I went home and told my father about it, he basically said, forget Bo, I'll get a second job and I'll be able to afford for you to go to Dartmouth College. So when I'm going to Dartmouth, I'm, I've got a chip on my shoulder, not only because of Bo Schimbeckler, but also because my father is working an extra job so that I can be there. And to be insulted on the very first day, something that, you know, you had spent your whole childhood overcoming, you know, going to the very first integrated school. And then you run into two teammates that uh, refuse uh, to have lockers near you or shower with you. And my freshman head coach did one of the most amazing things. His name was Jerry Burnt, and he was also the wrestling coach. But he did one of the most amazing things. He heard about it from the athletic trainer. And before practice, without even telling me, when he had assembled all of the players, over 100 players on the field, he said, I'm nominating Reggie Williams to be the captain of the team. All of a sudden, I'm put in a leadership position for the very first time in my life. I'd never been a captain, you know, in my high school wow. team. I didn't even know how to lead calisthenics, but I, I made it up. And, uh, you know, it sent a message to the rest of the team that uh, they need to leave uh, their prejudices behind. Uh, this is a whole new world that you're about to enter into, and uh, it's on everyone to take advantage of uh, this opportunity. And uh, every teammate, you know, in one way or another had fought to get there. And I had, I had overcome being snubbed to be at Dartmouth College. So when I hit that guy, and it reverberated all over the green mountains of New Hampshire, <laughs> echoed. One of my teammates named Fairfax Hackley III said, Boomer, Boomer. And that became my nickname on the very first day. So every time someone called my name Boom or Boomer, then I know I was being resilient because I was still there taking care of business. You know, it sounds like resilience. Also, part of that is how you're, you, you, you see the situation, your perception of it, your outlook. And in, in a way, it seemed to me as reading through your story, you went through very, very difficult times, but you were able to see opportunity and, and, and wow, I, I never met that man and that coach and what a great guy, right? Here's a great story of a leader creating the next great leader. But in that resilience, when you're able to overcome that, you have a friend, your best friend, Lenny, in your book, chapter one, right out of the box, titled Nightmare. Lenny's your best friend. You guys are inseparable. You do everything together, right? At the end. You guys uh, graduate and, uh, and Lenny ends up in a relationship. It, it goes south on him. He had never been in a relationship before and he takes his own life. And as you write about it, the struggle that I, that I read is Lenny never reached out. I, I, I don't know why he never reached out. I, I wasn't given the opportunity to help him. How do you get over that, Reggie? 
you know, that that was really a heartbreaking situation in my lifetime. I loved Lenny Nichols. And that's why we started the book off uh, with uh, his story and a you know recitation of uh, all the great things that he, he had done. When he left uh, high school in Elmsford, New York, he was all-state linebacker. And he had legitimate uh, aspirations to go from Dartmouth to the pros. Me, going to Flint Southwestern, I was all nothing. I, had, I wasn't even all league. And uh, I, I played well on our defense, and our, our uh, team was very good. We were 8-1. and one, But I had no aspirations that I would uh, become a professional athlete when I'd made the decision to go to Dartmouth or if I had made the decision or if the opportunity had presented itself to go to Michigan. I was focused in academics to be a doctor. And um, Lenny was told by the head coach, Jake Crowdhummel, who was the varsity head coach, that he wanted Lenny to change positions to help the team. And he had to move from middle linebacker to offensive line. And that put me at middle linebacker. And I became an All-American at that position. And instead of Lenny being resentful, he instead became my best friend. He became my roommate. He became my fraternity brother. He became the guy that I would go uh, home with when we had breaks from Dartmouth College. We went to um, Mexico uh, together to study Spanish and language study abroad. We went to Mm -hmm. San Diego together to study uh, sociology together. And the fact that uh, he had so much love for his family. You know, he had uh, two children. And when his wife told him that uh, she was leaving, everything for him fell out the bottom. And he didn't reach out to me. He didn't reach out to anyone. And that's one of the things I think is one of the lessons why I put in there. When you're in trouble, that's the time to reach out. Mm. And, you know, there are are a lot of people who are suffering a lot of mental issues. And when they internalize it, you normally don't ever come up with a great solution for an eternal situation. Then discussing your adversity and recognizing the pain, uh, you can survive. And that's one of the reasons that that was the beginning story because his nightmare became my nightmare because I totally internalized it because thinking, what did I not do? How was I not as good a friend as I should have, could have been to be there for him, for him to know that I was there for him and maybe, just maybe, he would have picked up the phone, or maybe, just maybe, I could have mm. called him at the right time. So either way, he's a person that um, was a uh, pastor. Mm. Yeah. And so that's why the whole idea of a pastor committing suicide was how the book starts with me being in hell trying to save Lenny's soul. It really is an incredible story in terms of the concept of reaching out, right? And the stigma of, of mental illness that we still ha- have today, and another stigma, right? And, and we need to move past that so, so we realize that when we are struggling, 
we can be resilient, but what makes us more resilient is having other people to help us stay strong. What a great story. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a man of, I, I really love Stoic philosophy. And part of Stoic philosophy is the idea, the concept of amor fati, which may, basically means love of fate. And what I, what I was uh, parallel to your story was this idea that you went from an all-pro football player to an all-pro humanitarian. And looking back, it seems that you are almost blessed that that thing happened at Michigan, that they turned you down. I mean, any of those things would have changed the entire course of your life today, right? And, and, and that's, that's what you embraced. You didn't, you didn't regret any of it. And in fact, when you look back, I, I think that uh, all of those sort of continued. Is that humanitarian, the Walter Payton, the, the, you know, the, the things you've done with, with, with kids and, and outwards in the community, is that one of the strongest values that you're holding today in, in looking at one of your achievements? Oh, I, I definitely am very proud of the investment that I've tried to put in the communities that I've lived in, whether it's been Flint or Hanover, New Hampshire or Cincinnati or now in Orlando, especially related to kids, because I know how kids can struggle. And there's nothing better than kids having big, big dreams. And so I had big dreams going into the National Football League after enjoying an all-American career at Dartmouth College. And I did get the um, NFL all-rookie team uh, uh, recognition. Then the very next uh, camp, the head coach, Bill Tiger Johnson, he benched me. And he benched me in front of the whole team without warning me on the very first day of practice. And he benched me based on the philosophy that a veteran can't lose their job because of injury. The guy ahead of me uh, had uh, hurt his knee uh, the previous year. And so be demoted, obviously, was the last thing that I expected. But it energized me. <laughs> i tell you one thing. I became really, really even more focused in on doing the damage that a linebacker could do, especially give, given the rules that were available then. And I was able to win back the job. But, you know, just the whole idea of being benched, you know, by your head coach, I think it affected how the media looked at me. And so when we got to 1981 season, which ended up being our Super Bowl 16 season. And as a linebacker, I uh, uh, led the team in tackles, one behind Jimmy LeClaire, but I also had 11 sacks on top of those tackles. And at that time, 11 sacks was more sacks than any outside linebacker or middle linebacker had ever got in the National Football League. That was two more than Lawrence Taylor got that year. And Lawrence was uh, the NFC Defensive Player of the Year. Mm -hmm. And here I was in the AFC going to the Super Bowl, and I didn't get any all-pro recognition. The kind of, of uh, honors that I received at Dartmouth, they weren't forthcoming in the NFL. So rather than get, you know, depressed about it, mm -hmm. I decided to focus all my energy on the things I could control. I could control opportunities to provide scholarship for kids. 
I could control visiting the Cincinnati Speech and Hearing Center. I could control uh, being a volunteer for the United Way. I could do things that make kids happier, make kids believe more in themselves. And those are the things that energize me more than personal athletic achievement. And so it did ultimately result in not only uh, receiving the Byron Wizard White Humanitarian Award from the mm -hmm. National Football League Players Association, uh, the Walter Payton NFL Man of the Year, and the Sports Illustrated Co-Sports Person of the Year. It also led to me being a Cincinnati City Councilman while I was still playing football. And that is a very, very strong inspirational message for, for kids. Uh, I still remember growing up in Flint, Michigan, and remembering that Flint, we had a mayor, uh, Floyd McCree, who was the first black mayor elected in America. And so you knew that politics were a lot more pure then than they are now, but it was an opportunity to make another major difference in the lives of kids in Cincinnati. Uh, one of the things that I fought for and was unsuccessful at, but still haunts me to this day, was even back then in 1988, I uh, put in legislation to try to ban assault gun mm. ownership in the, within the city limits. I could not imagine kids going to school and having to fear for their lives because of someone, for whatever reason, you know, having a weapon of mass destruction and utilizing that weapon with the most vulnerable people in our society, these children who depend upon us as adults to pave the way for them. And so uh, the latest shooting in Uvalde, man, so heartbreaking. I mean, I've cried uh, uh, so many tears just thinking about the parents who lost their loved ones, the little girls that had to, you know, put blood mm. on her from her dead friend to save her own life. I tell you, those kids have had to be resilient. They've seen mm. the worst of mankind already. You know, mm. it, it took me until I got to be an adult before I started seeing the worst of mankind. But for kids, they're very precious. and. Uh, it was one of the, the things that I did uh, take on almost immediately on going to city council. Uh, one of the things I, I was successful at was getting our pension board to divest itself from doing any and all business in South Africa. It seemed at the time that Cincinnati banks, because Cincinnati has a Germanic uh, history, that uh, Cincinnati was the the only existing banking situation for South Africa and the United States. I didn't know that at the time. But Archbishop Desmond Tutu called my city council office after we had passed the legislation to say that he could come and wanted to talk to me. And I assembled uh, my uh, kitchen cabinet of advisors <laughs> and... Uh, uh, he came to tell us that that was the straw that broke the camel's back, that Nelson Mandela was getting out of Robben Island and that South Africa 
was preparing for the very first democratic election. You know, that kind of story is one that almost makes it worth it to lose the Super Bowl. You know, I mean, your benefit to mankind supersedes putting a ring mm. on your finger. That having been said, it never would have happened, probably, if I hadn't been snubbed in 81 and hadn't totally focused in on what was best for the city of Cincinnati and the kids who inhabited that city. Amor Fati, right? Lean into it. Love it. It may be bad. It could be good. It could be great. It may be bad. Just lean into it and go with it. And you did. And and I think, uh, I, think I, I don't know, I, didn't, I haven't checked the, the Guinness Book of World's records, but I think that stands as a record today that you remain as one of the only active NFL players in active government at the same time. I think that is true. I, there's there's been a number of people who have uh, retired, right, and um, you know, gone on to uh, office. But I, I am proud that I was able to do two jobs at once in the very first year. You know, we're coming off of a four and eleven season, okay, and I had crossed the picket line the year before, and uh, so there was a lot of uh, you know animus, you know, with some players, but. Coming into the locker room, you know, when I did, which was only on Thursday, because city council meeting was on Wednesday, and your committee meetings were on Monday and Tuesday. So I had I missed Wednesday practice, which is where you install. And so when I came in Thursday, I had to ensure that I made no mistakes, that I was still in top-notch shape, Mm-hmm. that I was still aggressive and still owned the uh, the job that I had at right outside linebacker. And then we just won. We won at home. We didn't lose a single game at home. Ten games, including the two playoff games. And all of a sudden, you go from a 4-11 and 11 record to one player who is only part-time practicing, and all of a sudden you're in Super Bowl twenty-three. And so it really was a turnaround. You know, it is, you know, taking, you know, adversity and turn it into positivity. I think your uh, contribution to literally humankind is an understatement. So it just is, it just uh, rings to me that the story after story is about the fact of how you have taken what could perceived as a terrible, horrible you know, situation and thought about how you can either improve your situation, improve yourself or improve others. And and that story goes to probably one of your greatest challenges um, that you've faced throughout your life, which is your leg. Um, you've had, I think, at least at the time of the story, it was uh, 27 or plus surgeries, maybe more since that time. Your leg is nearly three inches two and a half plus inches shorter than your other leg. Um, Doctors after doctors say, Reggie, got to cut the leg off and you don't. And you you just, you you push through. What has that been like in your story? I never got hurt in high school. I never got hurt in college. And it wasn't until my fourth year in the NFL that I finally got hurt. And uh, it was a, a knee injury, which we, uh, at the time, you know, a meniscus tear 
resulted in a full-blown open operation. Now, you know, you can go to arthroscopic surgery and you can get that, that kind of surgery and be back on the field in a week, which is what happened later in my career when I had my left knee operated on. But it all started then. And then it's just, you know, the, the work ethic to get back from the hospital room to try to regain all of your, your talent. And no matter how hard you work, you're not going to get it all back, but you know, you're going to get something better. So if I can't be as fast as I used to be because of the knee operation, I'm going to be stronger. And so my game had to adapt to the injuries that I was suffering. And then about six years later, I had another, the meniscus was gone. And so therefore it was bone on bone for all those years. And that's where I had uh, the very first, it was called an abrasion then, but it's microfracture surgery. And so in that particular case, you can't put any pressure on the knee for six months. And so that whole off season, I'm riding a bike. And I didn't know if the operation was going to be successful until the very first day of practice. And I rode my bike up to the practice field, got off the bike, and that's the first time I tried to run, and I was able to run. And so since then, I've now have had four right knee operations. And the right leg is three and a half inches shorter than the left leg. Mm. And the thing that I was really suffering from was just enormous sciatic pain in my buttocks. And fortunately, another situation happened where I slipped and broke my hip. And in breaking my hip, all of a sudden, it cured my sciatic nerve problem when they fixed the, the hip. So if, the, if I'd gone to the doctor and he was saying, hey, I can fix your sciatic nerve by breaking your hip, I'd have said, no way. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't go for that. But I ended up breaking my hip and it was one of the best things that happened to me. So that has been a consistent theme in my life. It has been a consistent theme of why I wrote the book Resilient by Nature. Sometimes when bad things happen to you, it's really something good in disguise. Uh, more Fati. Yes, it is. Um, you know, Reggie, um, you're a hero to so many. Tell me about your hero. Why w Willie Lanier? Willie Lanier was uh, a middle linebacker for the Kansas City Chiefs when they won their first Super Bowl. He wore number 63. And he was uh, the first black middle linebacker in the National Football League that achieved so much success. And so I wore his number in college. And uh, putting that number on, my performance excelled. And so uh, somehow uh, wearing the number 63 uh, has been an inspirational um, number for a number of Dartmouth players since then. Uh, I have a, a, a guy who wore number 63, Brad Kittle, who uh, started at offensive guard for Dartmouth College with only one arm. Just a tremendous story of uh, 
of overcoming adversity. But that's sort of how I saw Willie Lanyard, and my heroes have overcome adversity. Muhammad Ali, another great hero, a person that I met right when I was getting ready to quit football, and he's the one that really in, instilled in me to believe in yourself. You become a hero to yourself when you believe in yourself. And so I, I believe heroes are in positive influences, and that's why when I became a professional athlete, I wanted to be a positive influence on kids as well. I love how you, with uh, Lanier and, and Ali, uh, I also noticed that they were something to the black community, right? Yes. They stood for that and humanitarian. They, were, they gave back. They definitely gave back. And, and certainly, you know, uh, along with the other heroes that had with Martin Luther King, I definitely uh, loved him. At the time, it was so important to to fight for equal justice. You know, the Civil Rights Acts of 64 was, was a, a personal benefit to me educationally. And so, you know, even uh, James Brown singing, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, you know, that was timely. He was speaking for the African-Americans everywhere in America you know, because it was time to instill pride in ourselves coming out of all of the policies of Jim Crow in the South. My father was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama. He was a great, great baseball player as a teenager. When he was 16 years old, he was invited to try out with the Birmingham Black Barons. Uh, on that team was Willie Mays. My, Willie Mays still remembers my father. In fact, when I met Willie Mays, he said, yeah, I remember your dad, but I really remember your your Uncle Otis, because he took my girl away from me. <laughs> and he, <laughs> now this is like 30, 40 years later that he remembered that. But my father left Birmingham because he got into a fight with the white guy. And that night, he and all the brothers in the Williams family, they had to get on the road and get out of Birmingham, get out of the South. And they ended up in Flint, Michigan, which is mm. the last stop heading north before you go to Canada. So that's how I ended up in Flint, Michigan. My father met my mom uh, while he was working at Fisher Body. My mom was Puerto Rican. She was 16 years old at the time that they got married, but they were married for 66 years. So it really was a defining relationship. My parents were both, you know, so passionate about creating opportunities for their three sons that was better than they did. My father and mother both got their high school diplomas when we were getting our high school diplomas. And so we would study as a family around the kitchen table. And so that, that's where I really get, you know, my perspective. And, you know, just like you try to live a life of inspiration, when you love books and you read about so many other people, you just become to swim in stories of people overcoming adversity, people who've done so much with so little. Uh, so that's why I'd rather have more heroes than no heroes. Well, you never lost an opportunity. You didn't give one up. And, and you were clairvoyant because I know that when you went to that library to study, whether it be for Michigan or elementary, you were thinking, I'm gonna write. I'm gonna be in this library. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get a book, right? And you, back then, it was as if you knew you were gonna write a book. 
Well, you know, I used to go through the library and walk up different aisles and look at all these books. And, and as a little kid, I sort of, I remember coming out of the library one day when my mom picked me up and I said, one day I'm going to write a book and it's going to be in there. Well, that one day was about a year ago. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, I just came from Flint, Michigan, and my book is in that library. And um, they also have a display in the library that I went to as a child myself that recognizes uh, all of the Hall of Fame for all of Flint athletes. And so now kids can actually, you know, see a Reggie Williams picture and bio in the same library that I went to when I was a kid. And so it really is uh, one of those uh, smile-inducing circle of life stories. Full circle. So my 11-year-old, he will not know the name Reggie Williams without having to look it up because he doesn't have the benefit of having the Flint, Michigan Hall of Famers in his library. But he does know the name Russell Wilson. And Russell Wilson, his generation, he writes in your book – about you. What an amazing, I mean, his words are just so beautiful about it. it. It's as if you're hearing him talk the same way you talk about the greats like Ali. Well, Russell Wilson is a great leader. I wish him nothing but the best of success as he makes his move to Denver. Uh, but his father, Harrison B. Wilson III, was one of my best friends at Dartmouth College. He was one year behind me, but he looks so much like Russell. They, you know, you know the, the apple does not fall too far from the tree. But Harry B. Wilson was a wide receiver on our football team, and he was a baseball player as well. And so he was another two-sport athlete. I played uh, football, and I also wrestled. And so there is a kind of symbiotic relationship when you're doing two sports at an Ivy League school, because no matter how well you do in your sport, academics always supersedes it. And so Russell was actually born in Cincinnati. When he, when he was born, his father was working at Procter & Gamble as a lawyer. And so I had an opportunity mm -hmm. to stay in touch with uh, uh, Harry B. even while I was playing in Cincinnati. And so I was very pleased when Russell agreed to write the foreword to the book. And he wrote about, you know, what his father and I mean to, to each other. And that's really, you know, uh, the foreword to my book because we all benefit from having great friendships. And it's important to build friendships in your life. And so my friendship with Harry B. Wilson uh, resulted in a lifetime relationship with his son, the great quarterback, Russell Wilson. Ladies, if you are listening, this <laughs> is the man. I'm telling you now, you, didn't, you don't have to take my word or his stats. You just heard it. He's the man. You know, uh, Reggie, thank you so much. Your book, can you hold it up again? There it is. Um, it's on Audible, Amazon, Postal Press. Amazing story. You heard it. Reggie, thank you so much for coming on. I... I Thank you. You are a great man. Well, thank you for having me, Judd. I will leave you with Invictus by William Ernest Henley uh, because it does speak to overcoming adversity. So it goes like this. Out of the night, 
that covers me. Black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Thank you, Judd. And with that, not another thing to say, but thanks for coming on. Hope you enjoyed the show. Are you ready to take the next step to creating an unforgettable brand? Subscribe to The Judge Shaw Way in your favorite podcast app and join the conversation on social media at Judge Shaw Injury Law. Have topic suggestions or questions? Email us at podcast at judshawinjurylaw.com and be sure to include an address where we can send you some cool swag. Attorney Advertising Materials. This podcast is designed for general information purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as legal advice for an individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and viewing does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No aspect of this advertisement has been approved by the Supreme Court. Any results set forth herein are based upon the facts of that particular case and do not represent a promise or guarantee. Those with legal questions should seek the advice of an attorney.